Now it's exactly 10.45 and we can start. What I want to address today is the origins of the state and government. And I'm going to have a very sweeping approach. Uh, one can drill down into the details, but I'm going to go roughly over the surface because I want to cover thousands of years of history uh, in this morning and then the afternoon. Now, this morning we'll be primarily looking at it from a sociological perspective and then this afternoon more historical, but it's really historical sociology. I think sociology is an underappreciated uh, study and the classical liberals and libertarians usually we think of as they're interested in economics and history and philosophy, but in fact many of the founders of sociology were very robust classical liberals. They wanted to understand the structures of human activity, what structures government, the market, social life, the family, and so on. And I think that psychology is exceptionally important and I should also add also psychology as well. And I have a brand new book that's coming out uh, August 10. It'll be uh, flying off the press. Uh, and that is called Self-Control or State Control. And that is primarily looking at the ideas of liberty from a more psychological perspective, which I think is also very exciting. And some of the most interesting new writers in psychology are very, very uh, deep and thoughtful libertarians as well. So let's start by asking this question uh, about what is a government? And I'll make a distinction between state and government that I think is helpful. A government is an institution, the procedures and the organization whereby we create and enforce rules of behavior. So often we think of an institution as an organization, like the Cato Institute is an organization. But the term institution also is referred, used to refer to uh, practices, norms, forms of behavior. So we can talk about the institution of the family, the nuclear family or the extended family, the institution of property, and so on. So we use the term to refer to both. In this case, there are a set of procedures, but also some organization that creates and enforces rules of behavior. So some common examples from everyday life that provide governance, boards of directors of companies, condominium associations, temple boards, uh, and so on. Uh, those provide rules. I live in a condominium. We have a condominium association. Uh, we wear fabulous uniforms to our meetings with epaulets and sashes and so on. Uh, we're governed by Robert's Rules of Order, and we make rules. For example, how big can your pet be? We allow pets in our building, but giant, huge pets like hippos and so on are not allowed. Uh, we have all kinds of rules about noise. Um, and we occasionally have to remind some of our neighbors who are very young uh, that party time ends at 2 o'clock in the morning, not at 6, and so on. Uh, and those are rules, and we enforce them. We also tax ourselves. We have condo fees. We, ha we have a vote to decide how much we're going to be taxed. We provide all kinds of common benefits and features, the hallways, the garden, and so on. We even provide defense. We paid for a security firm, and we were once invaded by rats and paid for people to come and get rid of the rats. So we have all of these functions that we're providing of governance. We provide rules. We provide collective goods uh, for the organization. Now, it's important also to remember that providing rules and providing enforcement of the rules are actually two different functions. They don't have to be provided by the same organization. 
Think about it in the context of uh, uh, legal claims. I learned this years ago. I won a judgment in a small claims court. Someone had cheated me, and I thought, that means I get the money. It doesn't mean that. It means you get a piece of paper saying the person owes you the money. And now you have to get someone to go and collect it for you. That's why we have debt collection agencies. But many people think, oh, you win in court, you get the money. This is not how the world works. We have people who specialize in going and getting your money in very honorable professions. They have a bad odor in, uh, for some people. But I like repossession agents and debt collectors. They're about going and getting what is owed to someone without hassle. They don't want violence. If it's a repossession of a car, they go at 3.30 in the morning when the person who stopped making the payments 11 months ago is asleep. They go up, they get in the car, and they drive it back to the lot. Right? They don't want violence. They don't come in with guns blazing. But you pay them to enforce your claim. So the institution that tells you what the right claim is is a different one from the one that enforces it. But it's very important that the enforcement agency knows that they're enforcing a legitimate and just claim, which is why they look to say, who issued this document? It wasn't just me saying, this guy owes me money, go get his car, that there was a procedure that weighed the claims, and that procedure has some legitimacy and authorization, authority to it. So we want to distinguish between providing rules providing decisions and, and uh, adjudications, and then also enforcement. Those are actually different functions that people often just lump together. They think the state does all of that. And in fact, that's not the case. Most of the uh, law that uh, governs our lives doesn't actually come from the government, per se, as we understand it, from the state, from even Congress or the regulatory agencies. It comes from the common law. It comes from people making claims against each other. And that's grown over a long period of time. Now, you can provide governance in lots of different ways. I'll talk this afternoon about the medieval communes. They provided security, peace, public goods through associations of guilds. So if you go to the City of London today, the City of London should not be confused with London. It is a small piece of what we foreigners think of as London that is governed by a medieval corporation that predates Parliament. When you go to Guildhall, it's covered with all of these because the city of London is really a medieval corporation of guilds. And they make rules governing the city of London. The rules that they typically focused on were very congenial for commerce, and that is why the city of London we think of as a financial center. And don't confuse that with the city of London, which is a different phrase from the city of London. Uh, these people uh, gathered together. They were business people. Uh, Henri Piren wrote a wonderful book, still in print, uh, uh, roughly 100 years after he wrote it, Medieval Cities, Their Origins and the Revival of Trade. The burghers, the citizens, were essentially a group of men of peace. Their people came together peacefully to produce an exchange. That's what it was about. <coughs> And in those cities, they built walls around themselves to protect themselves from all the violent people who are outside. And inside the city, they produced governance. They had rules and uh, forms of governance. When you watch movies about the Middle Ages, you have this image sometimes that, oh my god, the cities were terrible. And 
they were not very nice compared to today. Air conditioning, all those sorts of things were, were lacking, central air uh, and sewage and so on. But they were much less violent than outside the city, and that's the thing that needs to be kept in mind. And indeed, again, the image you have from so much popular culture is people are always burning each other alive. This actually happens rather late, and it was done by states, by rulers, typically. In cities, they had fines. If you broke the peace of the city, you had to pay a fine. You harmed other people, so you had to pay a fine. Sometimes those went to building up the city walls, to repairing them. A fund made up of fines, what did it go to? It repaired the city walls to keep the peace of the city. And usually the most serious punishment you could expect, if you were a very violent person and hurt other people, they said, get out. Go live with the other violent people. But here, we live peacefully by the law. And we produce and exchange voluntarily. So they produced order and governance for themselves. Now, if you want to think about the state, though, there's a most interesting historian, Augustin Thierry. Uh, I admire him tremendously. He was a great uh, libertarian, great French historian. And in his historical essays, he talks about his great discovery when he was reading David Hume, his History of England, which is also a great book. I was struck with an idea which seemed to me a ray of light and exclaimed as I closed the book, all this dates from a conquest. There's a conquest underneath it. And he began to investigate the origins of the states of Europe. And he said they all originated in an act of violence, of conquest. And of course, in the case of England, the Norman conquest in 1066, when William the Conqueror, as his friends knew him, and William the Bastard, as his non-friends knew him, invaded with his knights from Normandy and conquered the English and established and fastened a state upon them. And he was very interested in this question. He wrote a marvelous book, the History of the Conquest of, of England by the Normans. It's still worth reading. It's a beautiful book. It has a number of mistakes in it uh, that later editors have corrected because there were so many forgeries going around at the, at the time. Sorting out what was an authentic document and what was not was difficult, and historical science has advanced in this regard. But it is a very, very important book, looking at the fastening of what the, later was called the Norman yoke on the English people. And then the other thing that he did was to look at the history of liberty. He was interested in the history of power and domination and the history of freedom. And then that, he was the pioneer of going into these old medieval abbeys and libraries and looking at these ancient documents no one had read for hundreds and hundreds of years, the communes of Europe. And he produced volumes of these medieval documents. They were social contracts. He says, the first concern of the communes was to organize and to cement their unity with a solemn oath. These were associations of labor and liberty where each devoted himself to produce for society and to defend it. Thus were the communes born. So communes does not mean, as Americans might think, hippies smoking a lot of weed and hanging out. That's a hippie commune. It originally meant cities, but these were oath fellowships in German Eidgenossenschaften. You took an oath to be a member of the city. They're social contracts. So anytime anyone hears from a philosopher, oh, the social contract, it's merely, it's a hypothetical con 
uh, construct to think about justice. This is not true. This shows how ignorant they are. History is full of very robust social contracts. My condominium association is one of them, and they have very, very deep roots. People would get together and hold hands and take an oath in public not to harm other people, to do what they promise to do, to fulfill their contracts, to live peacefully, to provide for the common defense of their commune. These were sworn uh, fellowships or conjurationes as they were known. <clears throat> the question then is to focus on the state. The state is an institution and tracing back to that original state that Thierry talked about. And there are people who believe that the state is responsible for everything. Cass Sunstein, very interesting writer. He's spoken at Cato a number of times. He has a new book on um, law in uh, Star Wars. Um, I'm not a Star Wars uh, nerd, so I haven't read it. But he's written lots of other interesting and important works. He's a, a serious person. He was a top official in the Obama administration. And he argues, as he says, government is implicated in everything people own. If rich people have a great deal of money, it is because the government furnishes a system in which they are entitled to have and keep that money. Everything you have, according to Cass Sunstein, and this is a very common view, everything you have, you owe to the state. Because without the state, it, you wouldn't have it. Now this shows, I think, a, a very uh, weak understanding of economic principles. Economists have focused our attention on the margin. What is the contribution of another unit of labor, another acre of land? And that's what matters for determining the valuation, is the marginal value. He is, in effect, a pre-modern economist, like the old labor theory of value, they wanted to identify the one thing responsible for the production of value, the thing without which there would be no value. Classical economists said it was labor. The amount of labor in something determined the value or the exchange ratios between things. That was set aside. Uh, the uh, uh, revolution that happens in the 1870s in economics, they say, no, it's the question of on the margin, adding another hour of time another acre of land, another pound of iron. That's what determines the value. And that could solve all kinds of paradoxes in economics, the famous water and diamond paradox, notable among them, that the labor theory of value could not solve. The question is, why are diamonds more valuable than water? They couldn't deal with this. It was so difficult for them. But everyone knows a pound of diamonds or a pound of water, which one costs more? Uh, well, the reason, as was later understood, was it's because we should value on the margin. There's a lot of water out there and not many diamonds. Another gallon of water, what will you do with it? Something not very valuable. Another diamond, there are not many diamonds. That'll go to a very highly valued use. In contrast to being in the desert and you're dying of thirst, then you might say, I'll give you my diamonds for a gallon of water because it's the water that's scarce in that circumstance. This new approach in uh, law and sociology of law that Sunstein articulates is the same. But what they do is they say, well, now we're going to find the one thing without which you couldn't have 
what you have, and that's the state. Why? Because without the state, we would eat each other. And they believe that. The reason why we are not all robbing each other right now is because we fear the state. I think this shows also an impoverished understanding of forms of human organization and sociality. The only thing that keeps us in line is the fear of the policeman. Well, as many people have pointed out, James Buchanan, for example, the Nobel laureate in economics, said that's not possible. There are not enough policemen in the world to enforce order. Something else is keeping us from eating each other. And it's not just the fear of the policeman. There are other ordering institutions. But this view is very, very common. It's been articulated as the argument why there is no form of taxation that could ever be unjust. Because everything you own is a product of the state. Without the state, you wouldn't produce anything. All of it can be disposed of by the state. That's why we get ideas like tax expenditures. You know what a tax expenditure is? It's the money they didn't take from you is considered an expenditure by the state. So if you earn $10,000 and they take away $3,000, they expended $7,000 on you. The money they didn't take is the same as money given to you because everything belongs to the state. Now you might think, well, this is just academics. It's actually permeated so much political thinking and even government accounting. They talk about tax expenditures. What is not taxed is considered an expenditure uh, by the state. So we might remember uh, this gentleman uh, articulating that theory uh, very neatly, uh, as he put it, if you've got a business, you didn't build that. Somebody else made that happen. Now, I know a lot of people who were very angry when they heard that. Notably, my nephew and his wife, who have built a business. And we are talking 60 hours a week of work uh, to build this business. Uh, sweat equity, going in, doing the physical labor, doing all the things that they couldn't get other people to do, uh, constantly focusing on this business. And then they heard our president say, you didn't build that. Somebody else made that happen. Uh, but that is the view of this political class and of this theory. Now, to be fair, looking at the whole statement of the president, he said, somebody invested in roads and bridges. So it's true, my nephew and his wife have a business, and if no one could drive there to get there, they couldn't sell any of their products. Fair enough. But it suggests that President Obama built that road. They paid the taxes to build the road. And indeed, most roads are privately built in the US anyway when you go look at housing projects and so on, the developer builds all the roads. They're turned over to government afterward. But all the money that came from that was from people who produced wealth. Businesses and jobs and farms and all sorts of different ways that we produce wealth, that's where it came from. So they did build those roads. They paid for those roads with the wealth that they created. But according to the political class and the theory of the state, you didn't build that. Somebody else made that happen. The, the presumption is that all the surplus is attributable to the state. 
So even a, the weaker version of this that some have articulated, they say, well, okay, the state isn't entitled to 100% of what you have. It's entitled to everything above what you would have if you were starving to death. If you lived in total, absolute penury, so 99.9 something percent of your income. But we'll give you enough just to not die physically. That's yours, okay. So we should thank them for their generosity. Uh, but that cannot be true. It cannot be the case that all the surplus above simple survival is attributable to the state. It's not possible. And the reason is, you cannot have a state if you don't already have a surplus to support the state, because the state has a body of persons who enforce laws. They have soldiers and police and various other uh, uh, functionaries of the state. You have to have a pre-existing surplus before you can have a state. So logically, that simply isn't possible that the state is responsible for all the surplus. So now we can ask, well, what is a state? And looking at it sociologically, uh, Max Weber gave the canonical definition of the state. That human community which successfully lays claim to the monopoly of legitimate physical violence within a certain territory. This territory being another of the defining characteristics of the state. That's interesting for the contemporary headlines because we have a group in Syria and Iraq called Islamic State. To set aside the question, all of our Muslim libertarian friends say we do not consider this Islamic. This is a political manifestation. Uh, but let's look at the claim to be a state. They want to control territory. That is a defining characteristic of a state, to, to uh, conquer and hold territory. And within that territory, to lay claim to the monopoly of legitimate physical violence. And indeed, in this particular case, astonishingly brutal, monstrous uh, physical violence. But that is what they're claiming. We are the ones who get to use violence, and we're the only ones who can use a violence within this territory. And specifically, we're not just a robber gang, we're legitimate. They legitimate themselves by reference to religion, other states legitimate themselves by reference to the, the nation or the people or the class or some other ideology, if you will. So that's your definition of a state. States are territorial and they are successful in laying claim to legitimate monopoly on the exercise of violence. It doesn't mean there are no other violent persons. There may be freelance criminals and mafia and shakedown artists and so on, but they have not successfully laid claim uh, to a legitimate monopoly, and they generally do not claim legitimacy for themselves. If you ask a typical thief why he's stealing stuff from you, he says, I'm a thief. Ask a government employee, they say, because I have the right to do that. And that's the difference between uh, just a common everyday thief and a tax man. It's the only one I can think of at the moment. But, uh, that's an important one. So now the question is, why do people have wealth? We'll go back to our uh, French sociologists. Um, another one, Charles Comte, very important figure, not to be confused with Auguste Comte, by the way. Auguste Comte was a different fellow and socialist and, uh, um, uh, and so on. Charles Comte, uh, unfortunately not as well known uh, outside of France, but a very great thinker. 
And this journal, Le Censeur Européen, was one of the great journals of classical liberal thought. And if you look on the back, it was sold in the bookstores all over Europe, in Rome and Milan and London and so on, at a time when educated people all uh, spoke and read French, or at least they were able to read it. And uh, as he pointed out, there exists in the world only two great parties, that of those who prefer to live from the produce of their labor or of their property, and that of those who prefer to live in the labor or the property of others. So there are people who produce wealth and people who confiscate wealth or value from others. And the state is the organization of that means of confiscation from other people. Franz Oppenheimer, another a very important sociologist, a German sociologist, and some of his books have been translated into English. There's a, an extract called The State, which he wrote, which is a very powerful, fairly short book. And he, following on Charles Comte and others, said there are two fundamentally opposed means whereby man, requiring sustenance, is impelled to obtain the necessary means for satisfying his desires. Work and robbery one's own labor and the forcible appropriation of the labor of others. And the state is an organization of what he called the political means. He called work and production and exchange the economic means to acquire wealth, and stealing or predation he called the political means. And he wanted to understand how these institutions established themselves. So going back to this question of the, the surplus, and the impossibility of the state being responsible for all of the surplus, we can be open-minded on whether the state is responsible for some. This is an empirical question. Uh, but is it responsible for surplus per se, as Cass Sunstein and President Obama argue? Uh, the fact is, before you can get a state, you have to have accumulation of wealth. Hunter-gatherer bands such as this do not have states. You need to have some kind of settled agriculture uh, to do that, which generates a storable surplus that can sustain a larger population. And what's remarkable then is when two different groups come into contact, when you look at the origins of states uh, around the world, particularly those that have emerged off of, out of Eurasia, the whole world is now populated by uh, states, uh, those states supplanted other kinds of organization of human behavior around the world that existed in other uh, groups of humans, and all of them emerge out of Eurasia. It's when two groups uh, come in contact, and those are pastoralists, people who manage animals, uh, they may be cattle, and typically people with horses, uh, and agriculturalists, people who grow food. Uh, the development of agriculture was, contrary to Al Gore, a great moment in human history. Al Gore considered it the point when we went downhill. One of the more remarkable features of his crazy book uh, was he thought that the agricultural revolution was a bad thing. Um, it's unimaginable that anyone could think that. This was a great moment when people realized that you could eat fruit, you could eat plants, and they had these seed things in them and if you put them in the earth and come back later, there'll be another plant there. This is a really enormous uh, improvement in human well-being to be able to grow crops. Those people 
typically have to learn to be sedentary. They don't wander around. For one, for one thing, other people come and eat the plants that you grow. So they have to develop a sedentary uh, life, whereas pastoralists tend to be nomadic. And nomadic doesn't mean just wandering aimlessly. Usually it means from one place to another, up into the mountains during the spring and summer, down into the valleys during the winters, and so on. So nomadic peoples typically had clear places they went back and forth, herding their animals. Reindeer, in the case of the Lap people, and the Eskimos or Inuit in the far north, uh, cattle in other parts of the world, sheep, and so on. And these groups uh, come into conflict, typically because the nomadic people, the herders of sheep, cows, and horses, uh, moving about are going to traipse across the land of the agriculturalists and come into conflict with them. And there's a memory of this old conflict in uh, the book of Genesis. Remember the story of Cain and Abel. It's interesting that it says, Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. This is a kind of a memory of this conflict between these two populations that came into connection and contact with them. And this is memorialized in the story of Cain and Abel that it leads to a murder, that these two groups did not coexist uh, peacefully with each other. So when you get states, it tends to be empires of nomads over cultivators. And here we have some images of a, a scythe, the emergence of the first war chariots. A war chariot is like a tank. It's a mobile platform where you can shoot a projectile and then get away. And when these are developed, it gives the people who have uh, chariots an enormous advantage over everyone else. And empires emerge out of this. It originally was a kind of a peasant cart uh, behind a horse or a, an ox. And then they were quickly developed that they would have more speed. And you've seen Ben-Hur and so on, all the whirring blades and so on. Most of those were not, in fact, used. Those are movie props. Uh, but they become mobile uh, uh, opportunities to fire an arrow, get up close, shoot, and then get away very quickly before an arrow can be fired back at you or a spear thrown at you. So these people have a tremendous power. And then the development of the stirrup. The stirrup allows people to fight from on top of a horse. Now, this is much more difficult without a stirrup. Anyone who's ridden horses knows that, how important the stirrup is to keep your place on the horse and to be able to control it. If you don't have it, you're going to be you're going to fall off more easily. So people now can fight from horseback. And given the form of uh, violent combat, one of the reasons why men tend to be dominant in militaries is upper arm strength striking downward. And that's what you do when you have a spear or a sword. And it gives you a huge advantage to be up on top of a horse. You're mobile, and you have much more uh, violent power uh, to uh, subdue other people. And you see that empires are created out of this and develop and move about. Uh, one of the things that's interesting in this context that I should mention uh, in the sociological research, historical studies of residues, old patterns that continued, and typically rulers would demand in the early days 
that their subjects approached them with a tuft of grass in their mouth as if they were cattle or sheep. That was their symbolic relationship, was we, we own you. You are our flock, if you will, uh, and uh, we can exploit you uh, accordingly. Now, the Middle East plays a particularly important role in this context, and one of the reasons we can look at this is it turns out all domestic cats every place on the world are descended from Middle Eastern wildcats. And the Middle East, remember, is also important because it's the first place where settled agriculture produces large grain surpluses. What do you get when you have large surpluses of grain? Rats and mice. This is very attractive to cats. And the most intelligent cats decided to domesticate human beings, <laughs> effectively. So that's one thing we have to understand. Humans domesticated dogs, but cats domesticated humans. Uh, and to uh, let them live amongst us, and then, of course, uh, praise them, and love them, and tickle them, and so on. Uh, as we do, uh, because the people who did that didn't have rats eating up their surplus. So that's true also of my cats, all of whom are descendants of great heroes of human civilization, uh, who made possible the accumulation of large amounts of grain. Now, when you think about the way these states emerge, Mansur Olson, who's a very great economist, his book, The Logic of Collective Action, is just an absolute classic, uh, pointed out that you have stationary bandits and roving bandits. And when states come about is when roving bandits become stationary bandits. If the leader of a roving bandit gang who finds only slim pickings is strong enough to take hold of a given territory to keep other bandits out, he can monopolize crime in that area. He becomes a stationary bandit. So pirates and other groups that come in, they swoop in, steal everything, burn, loot, plunder, uh, and then leave, they realize at some point, you know, we were here last year, there's a lot of stuff. Now we're here again this year, there's not much stuff to steal. Well, that's because you burned everything when you attacked them. So they realize if we can just settle down, we can steal all year round just a little bit less, and there'll be more. Now the fact of the matter is, although that's offensive from the perspective of belief in rights and peace, it was an improvement. Roving bandits who come and loot and burn and destroy and come again next, next spring and loot and burn and destroy are far more destructive than those bandits becoming stationary bandits, saying we're just going to settle here and steal from, your, from you all year long. That's actually better. It's better for the bandits. But it turns out it's better for the people being plundered as well. To be plundered a little bit in a predictable way rather than being assaulted and attacked and plundered and looted and massacred. Now, many political scientists have argued that we can understand states as maximizing GDP or gross domestic product. And there are various models in political science where we look at a political competition between state actors and the one wins who can maximize or increase more gross domestic product. And that's not right. There's something very wrong with that. 
A James C. Scott, who's an anthropologist at Yale, wrote a wonderful book. He's a very interesting person. He's become much more libertarian friendly in recent years, a real leftist, and he's been moving in thoughtful, interesting ways. And there's very important to dialogue, have a dialogue with people like this. He says, well, really, what they're doing is maximizing the state accessible product, which I like that term, it's SAP, which has a robust meaning in American English, uh, to be the one who's being cheated. Uh, the ruler maximizes the state accessible product, if necessary, at the expense of the overall wealth of the realm and its subjects. So that rulers will then intervene into social processes, the production of wealth, to shift it to things that are easier for them to capture. And in his book, he documents this. He deals mainly with Southeast Asia. Uh, he points out the state accessible product had to be easy to identify, monitor, and enumerate, in short, accessible, as well as being close enough geographically. What's exciting about uh, uh, Scott's book, and I really, really enjoyed this book and highly recommend it, is he gives us a new way to look at patterns of human organization. Take a very simple example. He talks about the friction of power. Power does not flow uphill very easily. So when you look at areas that have been subject to successive waves of invasion and conquest, you find sedimented populations by altitude. Look at mountainous regions of the world. And I used to be interested in this when I was studying the Balkans. It's so puzzling when you look at maps of ethnic dispersion in the Balkans uh, through 18th, 19th, and early 20th century. They seem random. Different groups of ethnic groups, Albanians and Kutsovlaches and Greeks and Bulgarians and uh, Gogaz, who are Turkish-speaking Christians in Bulgaria, all these different groups. And it looks like someone made a Jackson Pollock painting, dipped it in and splattered it on the map. Doesn't make any sense. Why are they distributed in this odd way? Little villages of Hungarians and Romanians and Germans all over the place. And he says, we're not looking at the maps right. Turns out, in the ones that he studied in Southeast Asia, he says, if you look at it from above, it looks random. Look at it as a topographical map from the side. These groups tend to specialize in different altitudes. So the Hmong, for example, in Southeast Asia, people are found with scattered apparently randomly, but they tend to be at the same altitude. They specialize in certain kinds of crops that flourish in that area, and they were the refugees of previous invasions. When the invaders come, they move through the valleys with their armies, and everyone runs into the hills. And who do they run into? the people who generations ago ran away from them, that then maybe get pushed up to a higher altitude. So you find that there are patterns and reasons for this, and that is why he's very interested in those areas that are hard to govern. They tend to be mountainous areas or swamps. And interestingly enough, our story of civilization, which he debunks, says something as follows. You want to look at how people used to live in the old days, go to these mountain regions, these primitive backward people. 
or swamps. And we can go look at them as anthropologists and study ancient forms of human life. He says, this is nonsense. This is not true. They do not live like people lived 10,000 years ago or 4,000 years ago. They live today. These are refugees from the state. And they have developed forms of social organization that make them very hard to conquer, which is why they haven't been conquered yet. Their families are organized as clans. They have robust religious identities. Even their agriculture is different, slash and burn or swiddening agriculture. They grow tubers, that is to say yams and uh, potatoes and other things that grow under the earth. You don't have a, to harvest them at any particular time, unlike grain or rice that requires a large mobilization of people to harvest at certain times. It means that when the soldiers or tax collectors come, you can run away and come back and your food is still there under the ground. Now, I wish that someone in the US government had read this book before invading Afghanistan, because that is a very good example of people who have never been conquered by anyone up in their mountain holdouts, and they don't like outsiders coming and telling them how to do things, including when they do things that you and I find very awful about, such as mistreatment of women in their communities. But the fact is they have robust social structures that are highly resistant to being conquered by others. And most outsiders have not understood that and it has cost them a great deal. Uh, the Russians, the Americans before them, the Mughals and the British, and one can go back to Alexander the Great, whose empire crashed against those mountains and could not penetrate into them. But also swamps. Now notice our language is full of insults for people. Swamp people, hillbillies, hicks, rubes, right? Because the story is they're somehow backward. But in fact, they're people who've escaped from taxation, from military conscription. They ran away from things that they felt as impinging on their lives. That's why the moonshiners up in Appalachia and so on, and all of the disdain that lowlanders have for them is partly disdain for these backward refugees from taxation, which is essentially what moonshiners are. So Scott really changes our understanding of the world in very important ways. He said, these people are not pre-modern. They're modern people living cheek by jowl with modern states. And they are the descendants of the refugees from those states. And they, have, they are the ones who succeeded in not being conquered. It does not mean that they're admirable or wonderful or we should emulate them, but we should understand the nature of their social organization. They're not primitive human beings that we can go and study as if it were a time machine to go into the past. We're, we're studying modern people with forms of life that are difficult to conquer. Now we have an interesting, well-documented case study of the birth of a state. And that is the Norman state, which we can date from the year 9-11. So I mentioned uh, Thierry's interest in the birth of the British state uh, in 1066 with the Norman conquest and all the things that happened after that. Well, the Norman state is fairly well documented as well. Uh, there was a Viking pirate named Hrolfer, which is a fairly cool name for a pirate. And he had been plundering uh, northern France, went actually plundered uh, all the way down to Paris, 
the Vikings, uh, which comes from a Norse word, Norse, the Northman. Vik means a bay. So we have in English, all the names and in Vik or Wick means there's a bay. Sedgwick and so on refers to a bay there. And to go eviking meant to sail out into the bay, to go out, to be an adventurer. And there's a huge population explosion due to global warming uh, about the year 1000, so 900 to 1100 or so, and a massive increase in human population in Scandinavia. And they go out adventuring. Now, some of them become merchants and traders. The Vikings were not only uh, pirates, they're merchants and traders also. But they had a, a flexible morality. If you could trade for something, it's OK. But if you can steal it, that is much better. You don't have to pay for it. So there are many examples in the literature. <coughs> There's one in the, the saga of um, Eil Skatla Grimson. She has a wonderful story. Eil is in Norway, with, and he's visiting his friend Thorolf. And it says, they spent the winter together. That's it. So he said, well, OK, that was pretty boring. But then the spring came, and they built a long ship. And they went out. They fought many battles. They won many victories. And they plundered a great deal of loot. Then they went to Kurland, which is probably roughly Estonia, and uh, laid at anchor and engaged in two weeks of peaceful trading. Then they started plundering again. <laughs> That's a Viking life, right? They didn't distinguish morally between what Franz Oppenheimer and Charles Comte identified. You can produce an exchange or you can steal. For them, it was a question, well, which is most convenient at the moment? Producing an exchange or stealing? If it's not locked down, we'll steal it. If it's locked down, we'll trade for it. Uh, so these are pirates, if you will. They're plundering consistently. And then finally, the uh, Carolingian kings of France say, look, OK. We keep fighting you. It's extremely expensive for us. Not easy for you. So let's make a deal. Hrothar can become Duke Rollo of Normandy. And that's what happens. He becomes the Duke of Normandy and changes his name. And it's very interesting. Within 80 years, they stop speaking their Norse language and begin speaking what we call Norman French, which is a uh, derivative from Latin, uh, and establish the Norman state. And the Norman state is highly predatory. Uh, they're very good warriors and tax collectors. Interestingly enough, at about the same time, another society is founded by people from primarily from Norway, and that's Iceland. Iceland's a very different social order. They never develop a state. So it isn't until about uh, 1240 that uh, a state is uh, fastened on them, and that's by the king of Norway. So they have a period of hundreds of years without a state. And as they say, in Iceland, there is no king but the law. It's a very interesting case study, many interesting books, of a legal structure highly advanced for its time uh, that did not have a state. So out of this period come a number of different political orders. One we could call, I wouldn't call it libertarian, but not very predatory and highly consensual. And then two other major ones, the Norman state and then Kievan Rus. Kievan Rus, which later becomes the foundation of the Russian state, which we'll talk about this afternoon, uh, is founded by Vikings. And they also lose their Norse language. They 
they sail in through the rivers, establish uh, plundering posts, if you will, engage in trade with Byzantium and slaves and beeswax and other goods, uh, and establish a highly predatory uh, state system there, and then become Slavified, if you will. They lose their Norse language and begin speaking the language of the conquered people. Well, in 1066, with the death of the claimant to the English throne, William claims he has a legitimate uh, uh, claim to the throne. He has the backing of the papacy for various complicated reasons. And that begins the establishment of what we could call the modern English state that then, of course, goes through many subsequent revolutions and so on. But it's founded in this act of conquest. And you can hear it in the English language. English is a very interesting language. I'm told, or I've read, it has the largest natural vocabulary in the world. Now, you could always invent new words in other languages. So German is a good example of that. There are very many amusing words you can make in German. So the Istanbulische Dudelsackfabriksleiter would be the manager of the Istanbul bagpipe factory. Can be technically one word, but it's not in a dictionary. It's not, not a word word. But English seems to have the largest vocabulary of normal words. And the reason is it's two languages in one, Norman French and Anglo-Saxon. And as a consequence, we have a very simple grammar and a very large vocabulary, simple relative to many other uh, languages. And you can hear it in the, in the legal terms. There are all these legal couplets. Uh, an order to cease and desist. Why do both? Right? Should I cease or should I desist? It means the same thing. Well, it's one is speaking to the Anglo-Saxon population and the other to the French-speaking population. So their English is full of these legal couplets uh, that are in both languages. They mean that they identify the same activity that is expected, but they're put in, in two different languages. So over time, this predatory state of a Norman ruling class over an Anglo-Saxon population merges into one uh, population. And by the way, you can hear it in the language also. Usually when it's food, if it's on your plate, fancy, it's Norman, French. If it's outside in the barnyard making noises, it's Anglo-Saxon. So imagine someone, so I, I don't eat meat, but I could imagine if someone invited me over for dinner and said, Tom, would you come for dinner? We're serving swine. <laughs> would you like another piece of pig? Uh, no, it's pork. Well, that's French. Then now it's okay. Now it's elegant. Or similarly, if I said, would you like a piece of, of cow? It's, it's pretty repugnant to everyone. But a slice of beef doesn't sound so bad. That's elegant and refined. And we can hear this conquest in the language. The fancy rich people are up in the big house, and the conquered peasants are out in the barnyard, uh, mucking out the stalls and working with the animals. Charles Tilly Another uh, sociologist is famous for pointing out, war made the state and the state made war. If we want to understand the origins of the state, we have to look at war, conquest, and predation. And when we think about uh, all of the forms of a state conquest over time and state power, uh, I think it's a, uh, not merely a defensible claim, it's almost a truism states emerge in forms of uh, conquest. Now, war was once taken for granted. It was seen as the father of all. 
Heraclitus of Ephesus, one of his famous fragments, uh, pointed out, war is the father of all and king of all. Some he shows as gods, others as men. Some he makes slaves and others free. It was considered to be the moving force of human life generally. It's interesting that the two figures that I spent a lot of time studying in the last uh, three or four years um, to understand anti-liberal thought better, Martin Heidegger and Carl Schmitt, two uh, real enemies of liberalism, were obsessed with this passage of Heraclitus. They thought it was the most important thing virtually ever written. War was celebrated. Uh, another great anti-libertarian figure, Joseph de Maistre, who was uh, a real enemy of liberalism. War is the habitual state of mankind. Human blood must flow without interruption somewhere or other on the globe. For every nation, peace is only a respite. That the natural state of human beings is war and violence. That's not true, by the way. And there's a very good book by a good friend of the Cato Institute, which I recommend. It's a challenging big book. Uh, Steven Pinker from Harvard University. So again, uh, Jeffrey's comment, Harvard is not just a hotbed of uh, socialism. It's, it's, a, it's a warm bed of socialism, perhaps, but it's, it's not a hotbed at all. Uh, they do have many other views and open uh, discourse there. Uh, but uh, Steven Pinker uh, wrote a really powerful book called The Better Angels of Our Nature. And it is documenting that human beings have become less violent over time. And indeed, something President Obama said recently that people have been upset about uh, is absolutely true. He said, this is the least violent time in all of human history. And some people jumped on him because they said, well, there was a headline yesterday of a killing in Germany, and there was a killing uh, in Paris, and so on. Yes, those are bad things. But the fact that they get headlines tells you they're becoming less common. The fact is, the likelihood of dying from violence today is the lowest it has been in the entire history of the human race. And that's a good thing. And Pinker then asks, why is that? And he points out the development of trade, commerce, and various other features uh, help to account for that. Now, what about the characteristic features of modern states? Number one, the claim to monopolize law. As a matter of fact, they do not successfully monopolize law. There's a lot of private law in the United States, private adjudication, all kinds of private law bodies. But the state typically claims a monopolization of law. The replacement of customary law by imposed law. Customary law is the law that emerges as the custom of people to order their affairs. And the state says, no, we replace that with imposed or positive law. The claim to sovereignty and then the creation of an underlying nation. The myth is that the nation creates the state. The historical evidence is the state creates the nation. Just go to France, for example. Uh, look at, at the French nation. At the time of the French Revolution, probably less than half of the population spoke French. They were speaking Catalan, Languedoc, uh, 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 Occitan, Provençal, um, Breton, and so on, multiple languages. And for hundreds of years, the French state stamped them out and tried to eradicate them. Until today, as they're dying, they say, oh my god, look at what capitalism has done. It's terrible. Now we have to subsidize uh, radio and television 
in those languages that no one can understand anymore because of what the French state did. Uh, and then, of course, part of this compulsory schooling, uh, weights and measures, uh, passports, and so on. And I'll talk a little bit about a passports in a moment. So let's look then at sovereignty. One of the great figures of modern state doctrine was Jean Baudin, and he defined sovereignty as the most high, absolute, and perpetual power of the citizens and subjects of a commonwealth. It is above the law. It is the most high, the final authority on everything. And he attacked customary law. He was aware that most human social relations were governed by customary law. In English, we talk about common law, but the wider phenomenon of customary law. He said, custom acquires its force little by little and by the common consent of all, or most, over many years. Well, law appears suddenly, gets its strength from one person who has the power of commanding all. So this new state conception of law is law is power and violence. And it displaces customary law, the way people solve their problems, the way that people come together and discuss issues and come up with new rules. Thomas Hobbes also, the state is absolute and indivisible, cannot be divided. It is absolute in power. And as such, the sovereign is defined as the source of law and above the law. Now, it's very interesting. This does not correspond. This is a theory of the state. It doesn't correspond to how real states and governments actually work today. It does not correspond with the theory of the American Constitution, for example. And if this is the theory of what states have to be, but if we look at states today, they're not like that. There's a problem with that. The, the theory has to uh, give ground to reality. Now, lawyers and political scientists distinguish two types of sovereignty, external and internal. External sovereignty can be a very good thing. It diminishes armed conflict between states. It says, here's the line that says Canada and US, right? North of the line, everyone is nice and peaceful and kind of dull. And south of the line uh, is all the other people, right? So and that line means you're not supposed to invade each other. And the United States people here should be so grateful they have Canada as a neighbor. 4,000 miles of undefended border. That is a very wonderful thing. And by the way, I'm a big Canadophile. I like Canada and Canadians a lot. It's a great country. And they've never invaded the United States. Thank you. <laughs> I should point out, in Canada, they teach history differently from here. The War of 1812 is taught in the US very differently than the way it's taught in Canada. Most Americans are unaware the United States invaded and attempted to conquer Canada. Can Canadians are aware of this. <laughs> They're also aware that the Canadians defeated the Americans and sent them back. Uh, so we should keep uh, these things in mind and be very grateful that there's that line that says Canadian soldiers do not come south. Now, just as a sidelight, I should point out over 90% of the Canadian border lives within a hundred of the Canadian population lives within a hundred miles of that border. What are they doing there? I think they're waiting for us to lower our guard. And then they will swarm across the border. But that's just me. Donald Trump has uh, at some point will build a wall to keep them out. So I think external sovereignty has some positive benefits. Keep states from going to war. 
You know, your soldiers stay on this side, their soldiers on that side. But internal sovereignty, I think, is inherently illiberal. The idea that there's a body that is above the law. And the classical liberal idea, in contrast, was a Reichstag, a law-governed state, that the state itself is governed by the law. The state is not above the law. That was about bringing the state under the law, which is one of the great accomplishments of human civilization. These predatory bodies, violent and unaccountable, to bring them under law. If we think about the state as the, inter, as the institutionalization of what was called in French spoliation or rent-seeking, is a very ugly modern American term, means basically stealing from people. The state is able to concentrate the benefits and diffuse the cost. It's a great engine of predation. It can impose very small costs on large numbers of people and award very large benefits to small numbers of people. If you want to understand Washington, D.C., that's what's happening here every single day. A little regulation that costs each one of us a penny. Who comes to Washington to complain about a penny? Not that much. But take 310 million pennies. Now it turns out that's a fair amount of money. And there are people who will come to Washington to get that money, awarded to them as subsidies and grants and payouts and so on. But none of us will come to Washington to avoid this very tiny uh, burden of a penny or a dime uh, uh, that is taken from us. But add those up in the aggregate, they become quite substantial. But on any particular issue, the special interests are those concentrated benefits. They're on Capitol Hill constantly. And it's very typical when there is testimony before Congress, there'll be seven people saying, uh, we think that this uh, government program is a great idea. We think it's just great, and our clients are all for it. And one person from the Cato Institute. And that is on a good day, that it is a seven to one uh, ratio. So the process of civilization has been about taming power, replacing predatory states by lawful government, which I'll talk about this afternoon. But let me leave you with one quote from another great sociologist whom I admire very much, Alexander Rostov. He was a German sociologist, and when Hitler came to power, he was one of those, uh, like Marlene Dietrich and others who said, I know what is going to happen. I cannot live here. And he left and spent his, uh, his life in exile. He returned after the war. And after the war, he asked the question, what happened? How could this land of thinkers and poets, or philosophers and poets, as it was known, generate such unbelievable cruelty and violence and destruction? What happened? And he wrote a great book, uh, which was boiled down to a mere 1,400 pages or so, he was German, uh, uh, by his son, Dankwart Rustov at Princeton, in his, his Freedom and Domination, Historical Critique of Civilization. It's a classical liberal account of the state. And this passage struck me uh, when I read it, and I'll tell you an anecdote and conclude with that. Years ago, I gave a talk and, uh, at a college group, and a young woman was listening very intently and then she asked the questions like this. And she was going to get me. It was a gotcha question. You could tell because her ears were going to flatten back. Uh, I know my cats when they're ready to jump. She was going to pounce. And she said, 
do you think the government should issue birth certificates? You know, I never thought of that. I said, in the absence of some good reason for it, I'll say no. I mean, churches and hospitals and so on, there are lots of groups that issue birth certificates. I don't have a birth certificate. When I wanted to get a passport, I had to get a bunch of people to come and testify, that's him. And they said, okay. Um, so in the absence of a good reason, I'll say no. And then she leaned in and she said, how would you know who you are? And I was struck. She could not conceive of having a personal identity without the state giving it to her. And that was striking. And this, what Rustov says, all of us, without exception, carry this inherited poison within us in the most varied and unexpected places, the most diverse forms, often defying perception. All of us, collectively and individually, are accessories to this great sin of all time, this real original sin, a hereditary fault that can be excised and erased only with great difficulty and solely by an insight into pathology, a will to recover, and the active remorse of all. I think that's what we need to do. We need to cleanse this predation out of our minds and be able to see the world in a different way, the possibilities of voluntary cooperation. With that, I have exactly 10 minutes for conversation, and I look forward to your thoughts as well. Thank you. So if, you if anyone wants to pose a problem or a question, we have the microphones there. And I'm happy to recommend more books. Yes, sir. What do you think Alexander Mostow would think of Donald Trump? I want to be very cautious in this, because I'm standing behind a Cato Institute podium. And as I said, we're very careful about this um, and not taking stands on politics and candidates of that sort. Uh, and reasonable people can disagree about which is the most horrible candidate, in, in my opinion. Um, but I, I do think that we have seen a negative sum mentality that's very robust. There's a winner and a loser. And I want to be the winner. And when I win, it's because other people lose. That isn't even a very good attitude for business people. I don't know business people who think that way, except for two types. Some kinds of financial speculators and traders, where there's winners and losers when you're gambling in effect or speculating in that way. I can understand that mentality. Uh, but then also people who deal in a scarce thing that generates a rent, which is Manhattan real estate. Uh, and maybe that's an appropriate way to think about Manhattan real estate in some cases, but it's not the way to think about a society or a country. So I find that very disturbing. I think Rustov would have found that uh, uh, um, quite disturbing. And then the populist rhetoric, which is also on the Democratic side as well, so it's not just one side being engaging in this. The idea that what we need is a national will and a strong leader, we just have to do it, uh, trust me, I'll get it done, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that that is disturbing. And Rustov probably would have drawn parallels with the time that he lived. What he had seen with the rise of various kinds of populism in Germany, uh, 
It wasn't the case, by the way, that there was just all these liberal Democrats and then the National Socialists. There were many other collectivist groups vying at the same time. The communists, certainly other kinds of nationalists. Um, Hitler maneuvered to eliminate his various competitors, but it was not inevitable that he was the only one who could have risen. There were lots of other people with scary criminal ideas or illiberal ideas as well. And I think that it's very disturbing to me to, to see the emergence of this kind of populism uh, in American politics and European politics. Um, in Europe, the anti-Semitism has become much more open and obvious. And that uh, also is shocking. Uh, in a way, Jews are kind of the mind canaries for the whole society. They're the first ones who get picked on because they're not us, us being the rest of the society. We can blame them for all of our problems. We haven't seen that kind of anti-Semitism in American society, but we have um, uh, stand-ins right now, Mexican rapists being the classic example. I found that very, very disturbing. And I do think that that kind of rhetoric opens the door to really scary things. And I'm actually very frightened uh, for the future as a consequence. Um, so this is like the worst political year I can remember uh, in terms of unpalatable, distressing choices. But I'm not going to tell you how to vote. <laughs> yes, sir. Oh, okay. Come on down. You were first. I do have yes, to make a comment, though, on your Canadian-U.S. thing. Oh, okay. Actually, what happened is all of it, remember in the Seventh Year War, mm -hmm. the French were kicked out of Canada yes. by the British. And the British colonies went all the way from way up in Nova Scotia down. Yes. What happened is part of the colonies were in rebellion against England. Part of them didn't want to be. Right. The part in rebellion tried to get the others to rebel. They refused. And that's why Canada is still there. That's it. I'm going to add one more element, though. So I think that is largely right. Many loyalists went to Canada. They're still loyalist families. That's part of the family lore and identity, uh, that they're loyalists. Uh, but 1812 was long after the revolution. And many people at the time pointed out the War of 1812 was fought over Canada, Canada, Canada. But the story that has since come down has been so sanitized, it's all about impressment of American sailors, which was a fairly minor uh, cause. So that was a case of more conquest. Now, many people thought many Canadians would join them, having forgotten it was where all the loyalists went. Uh, so this did not turn out well at all. But, but Canadians do remember the United States invaded Canada, and Americans, and Americans need to uh, re remember that and be more grateful to Canada for being so forgiving. Yes, sir. Uh, you mentioned um, that the state creates the underlying nation. Uh, I was just wondering what your thoughts are on, like, um, I guess, stateless populations like the Kurds or certain tribes in, like, sub-Saharan Africa. Like, what keeps them together if, even though there's no uh, overarching state 
That's a, that's a very interesting question. So there are lots of groups that have some ethnic identity. Uh, Jews, obviously, a very important one, certainly up until the establishment of Israel, but now, of course, Jewish diaspora who are not Israeli citizens, but nonetheless have a cohesive identity within other populations. And the Kurds are a very important population. They really were the ones left out of the post-World War I settlements. They were scattered amongst various uh, different states, notably Iraq, Syria, Iran, and Turkey. Uh, they also have different languages, so the two main dialects cannot speak with each other. They're both dialects of Kurdish, but they're mutually incomprehensible. So I have friends who speak one, and they have to learn the other one to be translators. How did the Kurds maintain their identity? They also tend to be mountain people, and they're pretty tough. Uh, there is now an attempt to create a Kurdish state. We will see what happens. There's Iraqi Kurdistan, which is nominally part of Iraq, but functionally independent. Uh, those are unusual cases. The more typical pattern is that you have a state claiming to speak for a nation, which is the dominant ethnic group, and then forging a nation out of that. And we can understand a lot of politics is resistance to that. For example, what is the name of the mafia? Cosa Nostra, our thing. Because the state is from the north of Italy, was imposed on us. We have our thing. We settle our problems our way. This, of course, morphs into a criminal band. Um, that focuses on kidnapping and things of that sort. But it's our thing, as opposed to the foreign thing that, that was sent to us from Milan and from, from the north. So uh, the myth that later states create is the, the state represents the nation. But take a very simple example, the Netherlands and Germany, right? Go to Cologne and Dusseldorf, and the German spoken there sure sounds a lot like Dutch. And there's a continuity of languages, but we distinguish the Netherlands, the Dutch, from the Germans, that was largely a political decision made a long time ago. Could have ended up differently. If Cologne and the Rhineland had not been part of Germany, they'd be speaking a language we would say, it's similar to German, but it's a different language. But that didn't happen. And everyone had Hochdeutsch put on them like French was forced on all the people through the school system. Last question. We'll end up very quickly. Got only a minute. Yes, sir. Right. Well, thank you very much. I'll get my question short. You talked about um, various ways that um, free societies like the, the medieval communes came to be. And obviously, most of the world is now claimed by states. What are ways that we can try to push state power back and return to more of that free association and privatized law? Thank you. Well, very quick. Well, that's a Wow. I don't have time, so I'll talk about that this afternoon. But remind me to bring that up. It's exactly 12 o'clock. I promise to end up on time. We're having lunch upstairs. The next speaker, again, is such a stickler to be here at 1.30 uh, again. So I will see you at lunch. Thank you. <laughs>